Dear Heavenly Father, I am so thankful, Father, that in the midst of the chaotic and restless world that we know, we can find peace and comfort and certainty and reassurance and hope as we step into the pages of your word every Sunday morning together. And this island, Father, this respite from the chaos of our world is such a relief. It's an opportunity for us to to dwell on eternal things rather than to be swept away with the back and fro of current events and the things of our day. And Father, I know there are those all around at all times who are hurting and desperate in their needs, whether financial or emotional or physical, and that there is great turmoil in the lives of many, and certainly in our cities and in our world. And these things matter, and they do matter for those who must deal with them. And Father, your heart is for those uh, who are your children, who face these difficulties. And as the psalmist says, you are with them as they walk through these valleys, these dark places. And yet at the same time, Father, your word does not stop there. It does not focus there. It moves us to the mountains, to the hills, to the high points of the future, the prophecies of our days of glory to come, because, Father, you do not want us to find our hope in this world, for that would be a sad thing for sure, for this world is passing. So I ask, Father, that we would have a heart to put aside what is in the world and what is troubling us, at least for this time, so that while we sit at your feet and we listen, the dishes in the kitchen that Martha worried about can be left alone, and the troubles in our streets that we are fretting over can be set aside, and what we can think about for this time, Father, is you, your word, and our glorious future. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's return now to our study on the Olivet Discourse this morning, and I wanna begin again with our outline These are the questions that Jesus was asked and the answers that he gave in this chapter run accordingly. You remember as I studied last week with you, the disciples as they accompanied Jesus out of the temple heard him make that remark that the temple would one day be torn down. And so they asked him to explain that set of circumstances and while he's at it, they said, can you also tell us about signs of the end of the age and signs of your second coming or as we would call it, your second coming. What they meant was his coming into his kingdom And as I told you last week in our study, he began in his response to those questions by adding an extra one on top of all of the ones they asked. So Jesus began by explaining what are not going to be signs for the end of the age so we don't chase after the wrong things. And then next, he began by answering the third of their questions first. Rather than to do them in the order that they asked, he moves the order around and he began with what are signs of the end of the age. That's what we studied last week principally. And as we did, we learned that an age in the Bible is a period of history, often a very long period of history, in which there is a beginning and there is an end to that age. According to the book of Daniel, our present age, the one we're living in right now, began all the way back in 605 B.C., which is a time marked by Babylon's conquest of Jerusalem. And that was the the central change in world history that God used to begin a new age, an age he called the age of the Gentiles. That age continues until today. In fact, Daniel says that age will continue all the way until the Lord's second coming, which is when the kingdom will be established here on earth, and that begins the next age. And as our present age comes to its appointed end, whenever that happens, the Lord said in the answer that he gave to his disciples, 
that there would be signs, warning signs, to tell us that we're getting near the end of the age. And those signs would include things like world wars, or famines, or plagues, or earthquakes. And these signs, though they're otherwise just ordinary events that we're used to seeing from time to time, but these signs would become recognizable as such because they would follow a pattern of birth pangs, Jesus said. That is, over time, these events will increase in severity and in frequency to the point where you can't ignore them any longer. And as we know from history, these things began happening. Certainly the world wars, as an example, began happening at the beginning of the 20th century. And in the decades that have followed, they've only grown in severity and increased in frequency, just as Jesus said. So consider yourselves on notice. We are approaching the end of this age. And now we move to Jesus' next answer. And the next answer that he gives is in relationship to question number one, as I called it, the question about when will the temple be destroyed? Can you explain that to us, Jesus? And as Luke told us, there was a second part to that question. Can you give us some signs that would tell us that the temple is about to be destroyed? Now that's what comes next in the discourse. But as we go to this question, we find another interesting quirk, as I call it, in the Olivet Discourse. And the the interesting little detail is this. Matthew does not record the answer to question number one. In Matthew's Gospel, the narrative jumps from the explanation of the end of the age, question number three, all the way to an explanation of the signs of Jesus' coming, question number two. So Matthew just jumps from question number three to the one concerning his kingdom, but Luke gives us the answer that we're missing. Luke gives us the answer to question number one. Now let me show you in the text how I know that that's what's going on because knowing this is important to interpreting what Jesus says properly. I want you to look at the two gospels side by side. We're looking at Matthew on the one hand and Luke 21 on the other hand. Now up to what we've studied so far in both Matthew and the corresponding passage in Luke, they're both tracking side by side. Both of those Gospels are talking initially about the answer to question number three. Both Matthew and and Luke tell us about the answer to the question, what are signs of the end of the age? And if you look across the two passages, it's obvious that they're both on the same topic. But then at that point in the two Gospels, there's a break. And Luke and Matthew go in different directions. In Matthew 24, 8, which would be where we left off last week, And then in verse nine, you see the next thing that Matthew says is then, and he moves forward in time. But if you go to the same place in Luke's gospel, in Luke chapter 21, verse 12, Luke doesn't go forward, Luke goes backward. Luke says, but before all these things. So in other words, Matthew is moving forward in time in the narrative to move to Jesus's answer, question number four, concerning the signs of Jesus's second coming while Luke at that point moves backward to cover question number one, which is history now, because question number one regards how the temple will be destroyed. And so now you see that this is the order in each of the two gospels. Matthew goes from three to four, Luke goes from three to one and what I call one A. Now, when you actually look at the two passages though, just look at the text after the dotted line on my uh, slide, Notice how the language of Matthew 24, 9 and what follows and the language of Luke 21, 12 and what follows there, 
they're both extremely similar. They both describe persecution happening to the saints. And so if you're just reading it casually and not noticing the details, you could easily assume that both of these Gospels are describing the same moment at this point. I mean, after all, they've been tracking together up till this point. It's natural to assume they just stay in sync the whole way. And because they're so similar, it's easy to conclude that. But in reality, what you're seeing in this is simply the fact that persecution happens throughout all periods of history. That there is persecution for the believers in the first century and there will be persecution for believers in the last century. Persecution happened shortly before the temple was destroyed, which is what Luke's talking about in chapter 21, and there will be persecution of the believers right before the end of the age, which is what Matthew is recording in chapter 24. And so some have come to this passage and not picked up on the fact that these now diverge, and so this is where you get some of the confusion that exists in the church concerning the timing of events in the last days. Have you ever heard somebody suggests to you that tribulation began back with the destruction of the temple, while others tell you that, no, that's something that is yet to happen in the future. And when you hear this, you might wonder, how can Christians be so different in their understanding of something so basic? Well, here's where you find your answer. Some have gone to the Olivet Discourse in Luke and assumed that Luke was describing the same period of history that Matthew was describing starting at this breaking point, when in fact, they've gone in different directions. Knowing that is critical to interpreting each passage correctly. And if you continue down the passage of Matthew 24, you'll see clearly that Matthew's talking about persecution in conjunction with end times events. And similarly, if you scan down Matthew 24 from this point, you can see very clearly that he's talking about persecution in the context of the destruction of the temple, which we know happened in AD 70. So by the context of each, it's clear that they've gone in different directions. So, in summary, Luke gives us all the answers, that is, Luke doesn't skip any of the answers in these questions that Jesus was facing, but Matthew, for some reason, decides to skip a discussion of question number one. So, if we want to find all the answers that were given in the uh, Olivet Discourse, what would we have to do? Well, obviously, in order for us to get all of these answers, we would have to leave Matthew for a time, go into Luke, study what Luke had to say about chapter Uh, about question number one, and then come back out of Luke to Matthew to get to question number four. But this is a study of Matthew, not a study of Luke. So we are not going to make that uh, detour into Luke because it would take quite some time. Instead, I'm just going to summarize for you this morning what you find when you go study the answer to question number one in Luke's gospel. First, when you go there, Jesus says that the destruction of the temple, when it comes, would be accompanied by persecution of Christian leaders in the days and years leading up to that temple destruction, that the leaders of the church would be dragged into synagogues and that they would be dragged before governors of Rome and it would give opportunity for them to give testimony. We see proof of these things having happened in the record of the book of Acts. And Jesus says this persecution of the church in the first century would be an early sign to the believers that the temple was soon to be destroyed. And then if you go a little further in Luke, in Luke 21, 20, Jesus says that there'll come a moment when the city of Jerusalem will be surrounded by armies. And that, he says, will be the key sign to the believer of that day, the believer of the first century, to know that the end of the temple was about to come. Now, that sign happened in A.D. 66. In A.D. 66, the Roman general Cessus Gallus 
was sent from Rome to put down an insurrection in the city of Jerusalem. And he came with a Roman garrison, a Roman legion actually, and he surrounded the city of Jerusalem. He blockaded the Jews in the city. He couldn't get in because the walls of the city were very difficult to penetrate. So he just set up a siege until he could figure out a way to go further. And that siege eventually played out over about four years. And at the end, the Romans breached the city walls, made it into the city, and destroyed the temple. Now, with the Roman legion was a man called Josephus. Josephus was a Jewish military commander who had been captured by the Roman army in a previous conflict and made a slave, made a captive of the army of Rome, and he became a historian. His job was to record the events of the Roman army as they went about conquering. And so he was there at the fall of Jerusalem on the Roman side writing about what he saw take place. And this is what he said. Now, as soon as the army had no more people to slay or to plunder, because there remained none to be the objects of their fury, for they would not have spared any had any remained, Titus Caesar gave orders that they should now demolish the entire city and the temple. So all the rest of the wall surrounding Jerusalem was so thoroughly laid, even with the ground by those that dug it up to the foundation, that there was left nothing to make those that came thither believe it Jerusalem had ever been inhabited. This was the end which Jerusalem came to, a city otherwise of great magnificence and of mighty fame among all mankind, and truly the view itself was a melancholy thing. For those places which were adorned with trees and pleasant gardens were now become desolate country every way, and its trees were all cut down. Nor could any foreigner that had formerly seen Judea and the most beautiful shrubs of the city and now saw it as a desert, but lament and mourn sadly as so great a change. For the war had laid all signs of beauty quite waste. Nor had anyone who had known that place before and come upon it suddenly now would have known it again. But though he, a foreigner, were at the city itself, he would have inquired for it. I love that last line. Josephus says that if someone who had visited the city in prior days came upon it now in its new devastated form, he would have said, hey, uh, where is the city of Jerusalem? It was that far gone from what it used to look like. And Josephus tells us that in that attack, Somewhere around 1.1 million Jews died in that city. The temple was burned to the ground. The city was utterly laid waste. Titus, who was the military general at the end of that four years, who got credit for that military victory, he celebrated it by commissioning an arch that has relief uh, pictures depicting the battle and the celebration. You can still see that relief today in Rome. That arch is still there. And it shows at one point the Romans carrying away the implements of the temple. Those are the signs that Jesus gave his disciples in Luke 21 to tell them to know that the temple was soon to be destroyed. And it played out perfectly, exactly as Jesus predicted it would happen some 40 years earlier, it happened. And Jesus told his disciples at that time, be on the lookout for these signs. And those who heard Jesus' words in that day and believed them, were able to save themselves from the destruction that came upon the city in AD 70. And Jesus told them, when you see that army and it surrounds the city, that's your chance to get out. You better do it while you can. I also imagine those who did not obey his words, who did not either listen to them or remember them or understand them, they would have stayed in the city thinking it's the safest place. They would have died in that attack. They would have been among the one million or so Jews who lost their lives because of the Roman invasion. 
Now in that fact, you find another interesting reason for why we study prophetic passages, for why we're engaged in this study right now. You remember in the first two weeks of this study, I've been telling you reasons why Christians should study prophecy uh, in contrast to those who might tell you otherwise. And the first of those reasons I gave you was that the study of biblical prophecy is a study of our common future. And the more we study our common future, the greater our Christian unity. You can think of it this way. Gaining a shared understanding of our future means bringing us a shared identity, which helps us unite for a shared mission. That was reason number one. Then last week I gave you a second reason. I said we study the end times because it's supposed to bring us comfort and hope, as Paul told us last week. You know, your hope for the future comes from an understanding that your future in Christ is glorious and that the events that come upon this world now and tomorrow and at the end of the age, those events are not our future. That is to say, we will escape and overcome that. We know that believers will be spared from the wrath of God and that the turmoil that God sends upon the earth at the end is not for us. So as you know those things, having studied them in the Bible, you're in a better position to face the end of the age with confidence and with anticipation even and a hope that better things are coming. And now, friends, from what we just learned, you have a third reason to study prophecy. Because the Lord often shares future details with his children in Scripture so that you will not become collateral damage. In the Olivet Discourse, Jesus gave his first century disciples a warning. Flee Jerusalem when you see the Romans approaching. And those who listened and learned were ready to escape the city because they knew the prophecy. Because they studied prophecy, if you will, they were spared the Roman onslaught. But that's the key. They had to have studied it. You know, the ones who were there in the city 40 years after Jesus died, many of them had been born in the years after. They were not there when Jesus spoke these words originally. Somebody had to provide them a copy or teach them what had been said. They had to think about it. They had to understand it. It had to be a priority. They had to make time to know those things. And by knowing them, they knew how and when to escape the city. And undoubtedly, some listened and some benefited and others ignored and were caught up in the turmoil. We know that happened. Obeying Jesus' warning to flee Jerusalem, whether you chose to obey it or not, look, that didn't change your eternal future. Your salvation was not dependent on whether or not you paid attention to prophecy. You didn't have to know these things to go to heaven when you died. So knowing prophecy doesn't determine whether you go to heaven, but friends, it might determine how and when. So there is value in paying attention to these things. If you don't understand prophecies about Jesus' coming for the church, for example, or about how these last days will play out, that doesn't affect your salvation. You know, to be eternally saved, a person only needs to believe in Jesus' crucifixion to pay for your sins and his resurrection to prove that he has the power of life over death. That's all it's requiring, nothing else. If you believe that, then when you die, you're ushered into Jesus' presence and you'll be with him forever. Studying prophecy is not about being saved. But remaining ignorant of prophecy, well, that might bring you more trouble than necessary. Like those believers in the first century, if we ignore Jesus' words, you know, we do so at the risk that we might get caught up in difficult events that weren't intended for us. Or at the very least, if you ignore prophecy, you might find it difficult to find hope and 
peace in the face of things that God brings upon the world, and as a result, you might be despairing unnecessarily. Speaking of which, let's continue in the next part of Matthew's discourse, and now we're gonna go in Matthew now. We're not gonna go over to Luke. We've done that. Let's just keep going the way Matthew goes, and as I said, we move now from question number three to question number four, going forward in time from the signs of the end of the age now to the signs of Jesus' second coming. That starts in verse nine, so let's look at that. Matthew writes, then they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you, and you'll be hated by all nations because of my name. At that time, many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and many will mislead many. Because lawlessness is increased, many or most people's love will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations. And then the end will come. All right, we need to see what Jesus is writing here in a certain way. This is essentially an introduction to the signs that will precede Jesus' return and the appearing of the kingdom. They're an introduction because as we go after this passage in next week's teaching, we'll get much deeper into the details surrounding the moment of his return. But leading up to that, Jesus says this is the backdrop. This is the set of circumstances into which I will return. And notice there will be tribulation and there will be persecution. Once again, like, like there was back at the time of the temple's de- uh, destruction, here again, persecution is a backdrop for Jesus' second coming. And he says believers will be persecuted and martyred and hated by everyone on earth because of their association with Jesus. I think these signs are also gonna follow something like a birth pangs pattern in the sense that this is a new kind of persecution. Persecution's always been around, but what we're seeing here now is one that emerges in a greater severity and a greater frequency. It's everywhere, it's all the time. You know, before these things start, persecution will run like it's always run, here and there, now and again. It's always somewhere, but not always everywhere. But as we reach the end of the age, and particularly the days before Christ's second coming, persecution will be the norm. Everyone will know it, everyone will experience it, it will be everywhere and it will be intense. And it will lead to the death of many Christians. In fact, Jesus goes on in verse 10 and he says, this intense persecution will be such that it will lead Christians to stumble. He says in verse 10 that many believers will fall away, betraying one another and even hating one another. Now, to understand what he's saying here, you have to take a little closer look at the Greek language behind our English translation. The most common Greek word you'll find in the New Testament that is translated as fall away is the Greek word apostasia. It's from which we also get apostasy. It's this idea of a repudiation of some previously held belief. But that's not the word that Matthew uses here. Matthew does not say apostasia. He uses the Greek word skandaliso. And scandaliso means literally to stumble, to take offense. So a better way to translate verse 10 might be this way. At that time, many believers will stumble. That's literally what he's saying. And so he's not talking about Christians turning away from their belief in Jesus, but rather of Christians stumbling, or we could simply say sinning, in the face of intense persecution. They will stumble into sin by betraying other Christians to their enemies, probably to save their own skin. 
and even stumbling to the point of hating other Christians. Now that might sound extreme, but if you think about it for a minute, that's not so hard to imagine, is it? I mean, if you take any two people on earth, even two siblings, or even a married couple for that matter, and if you put them in a life or death situation, one that is pressure-packed and scary and so on, you know, at times people will react badly in those circumstances. Some may even turn on one another in ways that Jesus describes here, and Jesus says that's what will start happening at the end of the age. In fact, in Luke's gospel, in Luke 18.8, a different area of Luke, Jesus says that when he returns, he will not find much faith on the earth when he comes back, which I think is indicative of what he's saying here. It's not necessarily that people aren't believing, it's that people aren't acting like believers. And the pressure of the persecution will be such that it will trigger that stumbling. And of course, these bad behaviors, however they come about, are not gonna change anybody's eternal future. That's not the point of this. Jesus is not saying they're less saved or that they're not going to heaven. We're all saved by our faith alone, the Bible says, not because we live a sinless life or anything close to it. And therefore, no amount of sin that enters into the life of a believer can overcome the grace of God. And can I have a hallelujah for that? Nevertheless, these believers will leave the earth with a witness that's been compromised to a degree by their fears and by their selfishness. Now let me ask you this. I wonder if these believers would have behaved differently in that future day that's that's still to come had they understood the prophecy of Matthew 24. I mean, think about it. Jesus is talking about something that is still in our future. So the words we just read in Matthew 24 that tell us this will come, well, we can read them today, and those future believers, they'll be able to read them as well. But evidently, some will not have read them. And as a result, they will stumble as they come into the face of these troubling times because they won't recognize them. They won't realize what God is doing. And so they will give in to the worst of their nature and they will do things that I think later they will have regretted doing. Would they have given in to the temptation to hate one another if they had recognized the true reason for that persecution as Jesus explained it here? Would they have betrayed their fellow believers just to save their own skin if they understood Jesus' return was right around the corner because these things are signs that he's coming? Now you see the power of studying prophecy. It helps you serve Christ well under difficult circumstances. And not every believer is gonna live through the difficult events that he's describing here, of course, but some will. And the ones who live through them will need to have an understanding of them of the prophecies concerning them if they hope to respond in ways that preserve their witness. All right, let's return to the passage. Back to what we've read already, Jesus now moves on to saying his coming will be met by false prophets who will mislead many on the earth, and he adds, lawlessness will be increasing everywhere. Once more, false prophets, even periods of lawlessness, these things are not unique. They come and go, they've been around since the beginning of time and they continue today, as you know. But as we approach the end of the age, in the birth pangs analogy, we can expect that false prophets and the lawlessness of of life will increase. It'll go from some places at some times to all places at all times. Lawlessness will become the new norm as society crumbles under the weight of hatred and pride and depravity. And as a result of this general breakdown in truth, And in society, 
Jesus adds in verse 12 that people's love will grow cold. Now, as innocuous as that comment may sound in passing, I think it's one of the most frightening statements in all the New Testament. And here's why. You know, even in the best of times on earth, humanity struggles to show love to one another. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, in fact, most of the time, love is drowned out by selfishness and pride and jealousy and strife and malice and hatred. It's kind of a rare thing when you see a true selfless display of love in our current world, isn't it? So as rare as love is today, can you imagine a day when love grows cold, which means it goes away entirely? The Greek word translated grow cold in that verse, it's a word that describes the fire dying out and becoming cool to the touch, like a campfire. So that's the image Jesus uses to describe the state of love in the world at the end of the age. Whatever little bit of of flickering embers of love we might know today, it's gone at a certain point. And friends, that is truly terrifying. When you see how heartless your world can be now, Imagine how cruel it will become when there is no love at all. How ruthless and destructive will people be? How frightening will life become? I mean, how could anyone feel peace or safety under those circumstances? I must assume that the hopelessness that will be produced by this kind of change is a part of God's plan to prepare hearts for Jesus' return. And I think I find confirmation of that in verse 14 when Jesus says the gospel will be preached to the whole world in that time and it will reach all nations as a testimony. I want you to take note of that last phrase. He says it'll be spoken as a testimony. Now, that does not necessarily mean that it's intended to save the whole world. In fact, that's why he says it's a testimony. It will reach the whole world and some will be saved by it, of course, but many also will not receive it, and to them, too, it is also a testimony. Remember, sometimes we give a testimony in order to persuade, but other times it's given just to convict. And then in verse 13, backing up one verse, Jesus adds, the one who endures to the end of this age will be saved. And that is a curious statement, isn't it? We know that Enduring difficult circumstances is not the means of personal salvation. That would be salvation by works, and the Bible is clear on that. We're not saved by works, but by faith alone. And yet, Jesus is saying that at the times right before his second coming, if you endure to the end, somehow that will have an impact on your opportunity to be saved, on the opportunity for a certain group to be saved. And if you were part of our recent Revelation class, or perhaps you've studied the book of Daniel with us, then you know what Jesus is talking about. Because in those places in the Bible, we learn that the end of this age and the second coming of Christ will be accompanied by a seven-year period of history called the Tribulation. Those seven years that we're still waiting to see culminate the present age, They are the last seven years of this age, and at the conclusion of those seven years, Christ returns and the new age of the kingdom will begin. All of those are things that Jesus has told us or the Bible has told us elsewhere. And now what we're learning is the things we're studying here in this passage, in answer to question number four, Jesus is talking about the tribulation. All of the events we just learned about in this passage from chapter 24, verse nine down, all of these things Jesus is describing take place during those seven years of tribulation. 
During the tribulation, the book of Revelation tells us it's a period of great persecution for believers. That ticks the box there. Uh, We're also told it's a period of great lawlessness. That's another tick. We're also told that there will be an absence of love because there will be powerful false prophets that take the world over and deceive the world concerning God. That checks another box. And then finally, at that time, Revelation tells us that the gospel will be sent out by God through 144,000 witnesses to all the nations as a last opportunity for faith. Here again, matching what Jesus is saying now. And then we're told there comes a moment at the very end of those seven years of tribulation when the Lord will pour out his spirit on all remaining Jewish people on earth. We learn this in the book of Zechariah. We studied this in our study on Revelation, that as the spirit of God is poured out by God at the very end of tribulation, it will lead to the Jews on earth confessing Christ, coming to faith in him, crying out for him to return to them in the midst of the tribulation. That's the moment Jesus is referring to briefly here in Matthew 24, 13. He's saying that's the moment all Israel will be saved. Those Jews who manage to endure to the end when the Spirit is poured out, well, they'll be included in that moment of salvation. So what verse 13 is telling us, along with everything else we've studied, is that all of these signs are a part of the tribulation period. Let's sum it up this way. The tribulation itself is a sign that the second coming of Christ is right around the corner because we know from Daniel that tribulation is seven years and that it ends with Jesus' second coming. So if any of these signs are happening and you're in the midst of tribulation, you know you have seven or less years before Jesus' second coming. You can time it to the start of tribulation. So tribulation is the sign of his second coming, all the details within it, and they will all occur in a relatively brief period of history, just seven years. And all of those who live through that period of seven years will see those signs, and they will be announcing to that worldwide population that Jesus' return is imminent. Now, by way of contrast, let's just think about this in comparison to what we've already learned. Earlier, we learned that the signs that would announce the end of the age, well, these signs will take place over centuries. We know this because they started at the beginning of the last century with World War I, and they continue now. And as such, they're going to be witnessed by many generations, including by the times of the church. We're still here, after all, and we're still seeing them. But the signs of Jesus' second coming, those signs only happen in a brief period of time, only at the very end of this age, during the seven years of tribulation, and as such, they're only witnessed by those who live on the earth during those seven years. So as the whole world moves to the very end with Jesus' coming right around the corner, the signs will become increasingly intense for their sake. And next week when we come back into this passage, we're gonna study the rest of his answers to these questions all the way through verse 35. And in that final section, Jesus gives us tremendous detail on what the tribulation will include. But we're not there yet. We've got more to do. How the church will be taken out of the way prior to the onset of those signs of the tribulation, that too will be found here in this text. And that's coming up in weeks to come as well. And Paul reassures the church elsewhere in the book of 1 Thessalonians that there is this difference between us and the world when it comes to experiencing these signs of the end. Let me just read you a short passage from 1 Thessalonians chapter one. Paul says this in verse nine. 
For they themselves report about us what kind of reception we have with you and how you turn to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. That is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. Paul says the church waits for the Lord to come from heaven and to rescue us from the wrath of God to come upon the earth. Now let me suggest to you that you now have an even better understanding, perhaps another proof text, for why it is that we can say the church will not experience the tribulation. And that's because the tribulation, fundamentally, are signs to the world that Jesus' second coming is about to happen. But if the events of tribulation are a sign to the earth that Jesus' return is imminent, then it makes sense that the church would not be on the earth to experience those signs. And do you know why? Because the Bible says when he comes, we come with him. We don't need signs to know that Jesus' second coming is about to happen because we participate in the event. I told you that last week, but let me show you the passage that confirms this in Revelation chapter 19. This is the description of Jesus' second coming as told by John from a heavenly point of view, looking from heaven down. He writes in verse seven, this is what he hears, let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was given to her, the bride of Christ, to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then jump to verse 11, and I saw heaven opened, And behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. We all know this is Jesus. But then notice verse 14. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. Remember who they are? They're the ones up there above who are the righteous of the church saints, right? They're us, you and me. It says, the armies of which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. So friends, when Jesus returns, he will be accompanied by his bride, the church saints, who by that time have been collected into heaven with Jesus. Meanwhile, right before this moment happens, the Lord is giving the world signs that his son is about to return. But naturally, those signs aren't for us. We're not down there. We're with him. You're not going to need him. So here again, why do we study prophecies in the Bible? Because they help you prepare for what's coming. If you know that wars and earthquakes and famines and pandemics and all the like, if you know those are signs of the end of the age, well then that prepares your heart and your mind for what comes next. It helps move your eyes off of this world and onto the next. Your 401k, who cares? You know, your, your, your grass in the back's a little long, it's fine. You know, your, your, your world is crumbling, your government isn't what you wish it would be, your neighbors don't like you, it doesn't matter. In other words, you're testifying through your faith in the future that Jesus has promised you by faith in him, you're promising, you're you're testifying to the world, this is what matters. Leave the fallen world to the fallen. Like Jesus said, let the dead bury their dead. In the meantime, let's think about what's coming next because it's right around the corner. And likewise, if you know that the signs of Jesus' second coming, as terrible as they are, are reserved for tribulation and for a world that does not know him, then we can live in peace knowing we're not appointed to that wrath. But at the same time, 
We should feel some great urgency in this to speak to our unbelieving friends and neighbors and family members and strangers, telling them about Christ, telling them about these events. Because if you know that the end of the age is near, and you do, because we've seen the signs, and if you know that tribulation is what happens at the end of this age, then you know it's soon to happen. And if you understand what life in the tribulation will be like, and we're just starting to get that understanding today, well then, friends, you know why it would be a horrible thing for anyone to have to live through it. And so by your study of prophecy, you have every reason to know and to act upon the fact that kingdom work is your priority right now. Preparing yourself for what Jesus has said is coming and preparing others as well is our mission. We are all on notice. The signs are here. We don't know how much longer it's all gonna last, but we know that it won't be long. And we certainly know enough to be faithful to our mission as ambassadors for Christ. So friends, let me encourage you, don't be worried or fearful by the world's descent into turmoil. Jesus said that was going to happen, and it's gonna happen. It's gotta get there somehow. And neither should we make our goal, strictly speaking, fixing this fallen world. We can do our part to encourage love. We can do our part to encourage healing and and to be a constructive force in society. That's perfectly appropriate for every Christian, and I encourage anyone who can do that and should do that. But friends, don't make your goal that. There's a difference between helping people in terms of what's going on in this world and making your goal fixing the world. Those things are very different. We wanna help the people in it, yes, but the best way to help them is to rescue them out of it and to prepare them for the next world. Next week, we're gonna finish Jesus' answer to this fourth question, that is to the signs of the second coming, and then we'll move into what is probably the most important part of this discourse, the part in which Jesus describes our future, why we will not see some of these things he's describing, and that's not a discussion you wanna miss. Meanwhile, let me encourage you to look up for your Lord's return is near. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Father, I thank you that we are not appointed to wrath, and I thank you for the hope that you give us by revealing the future that we will know in Christ, and I thank you for the attentiveness of those who've listened with us to the scripture, and I ask, Father, that we would be a force for spreading this truth in a world that needs to know it, so that even as we hope to rescue the world from its depravity, we know, Father, that the ultimate solution is found in Jesus alone. So help us to stay focused on our mission even as we reach out with a heart for the hurting and the lost. And Lord, I ask that our words to the world around us would be a message both of the salvation of Jesus and of the future we have in Jesus. That we would not separate salvation from prophecy. One gives us reason for hope and the other explains the hope that we have. And I ask, Father, that we would have that balance in all that we do. Bring us back in weeks to come as we continue our study. And Father, we look forward to the day we gather here together, soon to come. Keep us healthy and strong and protected to serve you in that strength. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.